Let's begin with Matthew chapter 16. We will begin in verse 13. Let's uh, stand together as we read God's word. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever is bound on earth, you shall shall be bound in heaven and whatever is loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Acts chapter 1. I'm sorry. I'm going to go to keep going to verse 24 in Matthew 16. So you have to go backwards. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. Now we'll go to Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. Our overarching theme for the fall is what does it mean to follow Jesus? Or if we were just going to put it in one word, we'd use the word discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? And one of my concerns about using the world, uh, using the word discipleship is when you hear it, you might equate it with something like discipleship. Well, you know, I should watch less television and read more of my Bible. I should spend less time on my iPhone and more time reading the Word. Or maybe I should think about how I do my sports versus my church attendance. So I, that's probably some sort of conviction I might have and something I want to change. Or, yeah, I haven't joined a community group. Or maybe I need to do some service. Um, and, of course, all those things are good. But I don't think that's what pri- Jesus primarily has in mind. Or, or you might think of discipleship as a... As a kind of therapy, meaning if I follow after Jesus, if I'm really moving towards Jesus, then my life will be better. So following him is just a means to getting your life better. So it becomes therapeutic. 
But, but following after Jesus is not, it's not like adding a component to your life. Like, hey, I'm, I'm got some holes. I'm like a piece of Swiss cheese. And I, I got some things together and I've got some components missing. And so discipleship is going out and getting some components and sort of tucking them in those holes so I'm a whole person. It's, it's not like that. Fo- following after Jesus creates a, a total upheaval of your life. A total transformation of your life. Discipleship isn't self-improvement. Discipleship is self-abandonment. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. It, it's, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. We're, we're not trying to do self-improvement here. We're trying to do self-abandonment. Abandoning ourselves, abandoning our plans, abandoning our agenda, abandoning us being at the center and and completely focused on this one massive gravitational pull towards Jesus. And when we read last week and again this week from Matthew 16, immediately after Peter recognizes Jesus. Who do, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the one, you're the Messiah, you're the king, you're the one we've been waiting for. Jesus then looks at Peter, this, this strong leader, this, this forward-leaning, energetic disciple, and he says to Peter, now that you know who I am, now let me show you where I'm going to go. Now that you see me, now, now that you know who I am, I'm going to go in a direction. And I'm going to ask you, is that direction you want to go in, Peter, disciples? Verse 21, from that time, this is Matthew 16, from that time, after Peter makes his confession, Jesus begins to show, he begins to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Now, if there were a pause there in the text... Jesus is standing there and he says to his disciples, okay, now that you guys see me, we are on our way to Jerusalem. And before he says anything else, I just imagine Peter kind of standing there saying, yes, we are going to go back and get our capital city. We're going to rescue it from, from the Romans. We're going to go back. We're going to, we're going to go right into the, the most hostile piece of territory. And once we get our capital city, then we're going to take the whole country. Jesus, yes, I'm with you. Let's go. I'm, I'm following after you. That's sort of what I would imagine a, a, a strong, sort of energetic, forward-leaning Jewish male to say, yes, that's where I'm going. Let's go for the capital. Good plan, Jesus. High five. Oh, but Peter's plan isn't Jesus' plan. Everyone internally says, amen. I know it. I know. I know. How many times does that happen? You have that high five plan. You think Jesus is high fiving you back. And he goes, yeah, yeah, we're not going that way. Instead, Jesus informs Peter and this little band of brothers, he calls his disciples, His plan isn't to charge into Jerusalem towards the capital, but towards the cross. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm heading into Jerusalem. Nothing's going to stop me, but I'm not going to take back the capital. I'm going to take on the cross. And it's hard for us to appreciate sort of the, the stunning force of this statement from Jesus to this band of Jewish young men. 
I mean, it must have been felt like, like you got hit by a taser. You know, you had all this forward movement, and then Jesus kind of pulls out the cross taser, and you're like, oh, that's not what I planned on. I was heading towards the capital. I was heading towards power. I was heading towards control. I was heading towards my plan's destination. And now you just sort of shocked me and I'm, I'm just in a dead stop. And we see when uh, Peter recovers, he takes Jesus aside. And in this powerful leadership showdown, just try to picture it. All the disciples together, and Peter decides, hey, I can't do this in front of everybody, but I've got to take Jesus aside, and now you've got this huddle over here of 11 men, and you've got Peter, who's really the undisputed leader of the 11 men. And he, in this massive power play, is going to rebuke the other leader, who's the leader of all 12 men. You see, what, you see what's setting up here? This is these, this, these two massive, well, one massive force going against Peter, who thinks he's a massive force, but compared to Jesus, he's like a gnat. But, I mean, if you're in the group, it's this massive power play, and Jesus, Peter, rebukes Jesus, saying, you know, you don't have the right plan. And, and Jesus, if you expect people to follow you, you better go for the capital. Because if you go for the cross, hey, ain't nobody following. Well, one rebuke leads to another. And then verse 23, Jesus says to Peter, Satan, get behind me. Your mind is not set on God's plans. You, you don't have God's plan in mind. You have your own plan in mind, and you're trying to push your plan on me, and I'm not taking it. So then Jesus drags Peter back to the twelve. He, he brings him back to the huddle, and he says to Peter in front of now all these disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, I'm not talking about watching less television and reading your Bible more. I'm not talking about joining a small group. I'm not talking about limiting your sports activity so you can go to church more. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, about coming after me. Purposefully charging into hostile territory, Jerusalem, laying down your own plans, taking up your cross, and willing to risk your life. That's what it means to follow after Jesus. Those are the only people I'm interested in. And it can be anyone. But anyone who's willing to go down this path, not towards the capital, but towards the cross. And this, this, as I sat in my office this week and just thought about this moment, just took probably a few minutes to unpack. I, I thought this just has sort of the smell or it has the feel of when Jesus is uh, on the boat with his disciples and a big storm comes up. You remember Jesus is out on the boat with his disciples and, and then they're broadsided by, by this life-threatening storm. But but this time, in this particular event, in Matthew 16, they're not broadsided by wind and rain. They're broadsided by Peter. Peter's the big storm. And saying, God, we're going a different way. 
Peter's man-centered view of what it means to follow after Jesus broadsides the whole group and nearly swallows all of them up. And so we just need to be careful that whenever discipleship gets redefined around your comfort and not your cross, it's a gray storm. Whenever you hear somebody talk about following after Jesus and it's defined somehow by your comfort and not the cross, it's a great storm. It's trying to broadside and swallow up the whole church. And I would say in our day, in what you hear sort of popular Christian culture, we have that storm. We have a massive storm that discipleship is really revolved around what's going to be best for you in this life. And it gets redefined around your best life right now. And Jesus is saying, I'm not primarily concerned about that. I'm primarily concerned for people who are going to give up that life and go towards the cross, not towards the capital. Towards the cross, not towards comfort. So Jesus rebukes Peter. Much like he does the wind and the waves. And he says, hey, anybody who wants to follow, come after me, pick up your cross, go for me. And I imagine just like after the storm, complete silence. Just the breath of that intense moment from all sides. They're just, remember, you've been in that kind of intense relational moment. It's just. You stop. Something powerful has been said, and all you can hear is this this breathing. And the disciples must have looked at each other and said, "Is this way? Is this the way we want to go?" I mean, we were really in it for another reason. I mean, are, are we wanting to go to Jerusalem towards the cross and not towards the capital? You know, on the cross, a lot of things are. On display, but but one of the things that's on display is Jesus showing his disciples uh, the incredible distance he was willing to travel for them to meet God. You just look at it and you think, what an what an incredible distance! You were willing to give up relationships. You were really willing to give up your life. You were willing to go through all this emotional, mental, and spiritual damage, this, this, this very difficult moment. You're, you're willing to go any distance, Jesus, in order for me to see God. He needs the disciples to see that because he's going to say, guys, this is the distance you have to go for other people to see God. You have to be willing to give up your emotions and, and your life and your finances and your plans They have to be laid down. Eleven of the twelve disciples would be willing to go the distance. And and their willingness to lay down their lives quickly becomes a, a pattern of discipleship. And we see it clearly in the book of Acts. If you just think about Paul and his sort of ministry teams. So you have Paul and Barnabas. They're the first ones. They're called out of Antioch, and they go to what's modern-day Turkey, and they visit basically these three towns in an area called Galatia, which is where we get the book of Galatians in the Bible. And in this area, or you might think of it as a county, there's these three little cities. 
And they're purposely going into the city each time. We're going into the heart of the city. These people don't know anything about Jesus, but we're going into this hostile territory. And we're going to do our best to try to communicate and show the love of Christ. And the first one they get in, they're beaten and thrown out. And the second one they get in, well, the people in the first city come to that city and they throw them out of that city. And in the third city they go into, I think it's called Lystra. They go into that city, Paul is drug out of the city, stoned, and everybody think he's dead. But he's not, and he gets up. It's a stunning verse in Acts 14, probably. And he walks back into the city. You see, I'm willing to, I'm willing to give, I'm, I've said, I'm following Christ. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So I'm charging in to this hostile territory to tell people about Christ. And that means laying down my own plans, picking up God's plans. And God's plans is to take up a cross. He goes back to sort of the home church. He picks up a couple of new guys. Now he's with Silas and Timothy and some other guys. And now they move off even into Greece. And so they go to Philippi. They're beaten with rods, imprisoned, and thrown out of the city. Then they go to Thessalonica. They're just moving down the coast of Greece. They're beaten and thrown out of the city. Then they go to Berea, and the people from Thessalonica come and throw them out of the city. Then they go to Athens, and Paul stands there in the university, and all the the philosophy professors, sorry if there's a philosophy professor here, they don't throw them out of the city, they just mock them, saying, "You're, you're ridiculous. Nobody would believe what you're talking about. He goes to Corinth, and Paul is so afraid, God has to come in a vision and say, hey, I need you to stay in this city. Don't get thrown out, don't leave. He goes to Ephesus, 25,000 people start a riot in a stadium and start chanting, we want Paul dead. Imagine that. He stays there for two years, ministers in that city. Eventually, he goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested and imprisoned. Then he gets to the capital city of Rome. He's imprisoned. And when he exits Rome... He exits with an executioner, and somebody cuts off Paul's head. See, that's the plan. That's the plan of discipleship. That's what Jesus means back here in Matthew 16. If anyone wants to follow after me, you've got to charge into hostile territory. You've got to charge into the capital city. You've got to sit there, and you've got to be willing to lay down your life, lay down your plans, and follow after me. History tells us that the first 300 years of the church were marked by terrible persecution. Many of the people that followed sort of in the wake of the disciples were burned or maimed or beheaded. And if you're like a a church history nerd like I am, there's only two or three of you probably here. But like at night, you're like, I can't wait to read my new edition of church history. Nancy's like... You know, just like, hey, great pill for insomnia. And uh, so this creed that we said today, the Nicene Creed, it's one of the oldest creeds that we have. It was created by uh, the Roman emperor Constantine. And Constantine was the one who came to power, became a Christian, and stopped the persecution of the Christians. And so he called this council in 325 in this city called Nicaea, 
which is where we get the Nicene Creed. And 225 bishops came to sort of hammer out this idea of who is Jesus. Of course, they knew it, but they're saying we need to put it in a creed and then it can go back to all the churches and everybody can say, this is what the Bible says. This is what we're affirming. And of course, it would have been fascinating to be at this particular event. But what I would have been most fascinated by is the very end of the event. Once they have everything established, they're leaving this hall where 225 people are together. And Constantine is at the door. And many of the people who are walking out the door, many of these bishops, had themselves been persecuted under the tyranny of the Roman Empire. And so they're leaving with a stump They're leaving with an empty eye socket. They're leaving with scars of having been burned. And Constantine, as the Roman emperor, kisses every scar. Thank you for being a disciple. I can't imagine what it was like for somebody to chop off your arm. I can't imagine what it was like for somebody to, to pull your eye out. And you, you kept saying, I'm going to keep coming. I'm going to keep moving towards these people who are otherwise hostile to me. I'm so thankful that you've done that. Now, I don't know if it's because of technology. I don't know if it's because of the way our world is right now, but there's a lot of hostility towards Christianity today. And you can see it maybe. Maybe it's always been there, but it's, you can see it today. And so I watched this. I couldn't watch more than about a minute video this week. Bunch of militants around, out in an open field it looked like. Two men handcuffed on their knees Heads bowed. One a pastor, one a congregant of his church. One of the men with a small knife cuts off the head of the first guy. And then the second. And so I say, that's like the Apostle Paul. And then I think, what if it had been me? What if it had been me, me and you? I was the pastor and it was you. They came in today and they got me and they got you. Because that, that is happening in churches today. And what if it was me and you? Are, are we creating disciples with that kind of fiber? Or are you thinking about discipleship as therapy? Or, gosh, I just need to get off my iPhone a little bit more. I mean, see, this isn't what it's about. This isn't what Jesus was talking about. He's talking about something really totally different. And, it, and if it stops you in your tracks like that wasn't what I was in for, then you can appreciate what Peter thought. But then you have to ask yourself, okay, but am, am I going to be one of the 11 that go forward, or am I going to back up? Are, are you ready? Are you willing, really willing, to lay down your plans, pick up God's plans, whatever they may mean, whatever they may cost, 
purposefully go into hostile situations, difficult environments, and say, God, whatever the cost, I'm here for you, not for me. I got to that point in this sermon and realized, hey, that was all supposed to be the introduction of my sermon. And it felt like a whole sermon. I got, you know, I got four pages into my introduction. I was like, dude, this is supposed to be about a paragraph. Bad sermon writing technique. I meant to talk about Acts and show you several different places of where I wanted to solidify the fact that when we talk about discipleship and the kind of commitment that we have, then we can see it play out in many different ways. It doesn't all end tragically, but it does create some difficulty. And so I was going to say, okay, let's look at this in Acts. So now I'm just going to try to deliver like a one-point sermon. How about that? Not a three-point sermon because I've had this long introduction, but I just want to present sort of a one-point sermon. And the way I want us to think about this is one of the greatest struggles for the early church, for the disciples, and, and just the early church in general, was what I'm calling their, their um, reservation or maybe their um, hesitation to make room at the table for anyone who wants to follow after Jesus. They had a small table mentality. They had a us and maybe just a few more kind of mentality. And you see it here in Acts chapter 1, do you not? Jesus is coming. He's, he's been resurrected. and he's, he's doing his visits before he ascends. And he's with the disciples. And they say, okay, now, now we know the game plan. What, is it, what does he say? What does Peter say? We're going to Jerusalem. We're going back to Israel. And now you're going to establish Israel. And Jesus says, you got a small table. You're at the coffee table, Peter and disciples. I'm looking for a worldwide banquet table that anyone in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the end of the world, you've got to make room at your table, church, for more and more people of all kinds to come to the table. And it it was difficult. We understand that difficulty, do you not? To make room at the table? A few chapters later, Peter has to have this vision over and over again about the sheet coming down with all these animals that he would have said is unclean. And that, that begins this journey to the Roman soldier's house, a guy named Cornelius. And he comes into the house and he says, hey, you know what? It's not right for me to be even be in this house. But God's giving me this vision that I've got to make room at the table. People from other nations, even if you're, a, if you're part of the occupying force in my own country. I've got to make room at the table for you. Acts chapter 15. Really the first church council, not Nicaea, but Acts chapter 15. And some of the believers come and say, well, we see all kinds of people come. We see anyone coming into the community of Christ. Great, but let's get them down this narrow chute of of being like a Jew. You got to eat this way. You got to live this way. We got 618 laws to teach them. And so they got to do all these things. And God says, hey, we got to make room at the table. So if people don't prefer your diet, if people don't prefer your style of music, 
If people don't prefer things that you do, hey, that's okay. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who prefer Jesus over anything else. And then all these other things, you got to make room at the table for those kinds of people. They're going to have something totally different in mind. And so in a very small, I don't, I don't, I don't want to make this sound anything like it's big. It's not compared to what we've talked about already. We're trying to make room at the table. It's easier to have one service. Every, every seat filled. It's more comfortable. If you're leading worship, more energy. If you're preaching, more feedback, more amens. And so I, I prefer to say, hey, it's just, hey, we got 340 chairs. It's 340. And we as leaders felt like God say, hey, it's time to make room at the table. Small, Paul, what I'm asking you, real small. Maybe it's because my faith, real small. You got to make room at the table. You got to be willing to open up. And so for you, you're, you're part of the congregation who's trying to make room at the table. And part of it is breaking open a group so there's more seats. And part of it is you moving out into the community. Into what would be hostile territory. And saying, you know, I'm going to lay down my plan. I'm going to step into God's plan. And see if he might not use me as the tool to bring somebody to the table. Last story I want to end on just happened this weekend. A friend of mine that I met as a kid in Columbia, South Carolina, named Marty Simpson. He was at Spring Valley High School in 1988. And so I was the Young Life leader at his high school. There wasn't really Young Life going on there, so I'm trying to just meet anybody. I was an old football player, so I, my first thing after school, you go hang out football team. So you're hanging out with the football team. You're just trying to get to know the guys that might be staying around on the sideline, that sort of thing. And uh, But they're all sort of supposed to be paying attention to the coach, so you don't want to be a, an irritation to that. So you're not trying to get in the way and... So you stand around. It's awkward. You don't know anybody. Nobody knows who you are. And you're just trying to make friends. You're trying to step into their lives in some way. And so I kind of was walking away from this one particular practice a little dejected. Like, I just can't. I don't know. It's just not happening. And I see this lonely field goal kicker. They're always off by themselves, right? (laughs) They're desperate for anybody to talk to them. And I'm an old offensive lineman, and I seriously dislike the field goal kicker, right? I don't want to use that word hate, but when you've been bumping your body up against the next biggest guy on the team for two hours and he then sprints on and everybody goes, "Wow, he made it. I'm like, dude, he doesn't know what I've been doing the last two hours. He's been over there by himself having a picnic and everybody's giving him high fives. So I'm just, I have this immediate, like, I don't like this guy, but he's by himself. He's kicking these balls and then he's got to go run, go get them, bring them back to the 20 or 30, whatever, kick them. And I was like, I'll just go shag some balls for him. So I, I get down to the goalpost. I'm throwing these balls in a perfect tight spiral back to him. And, um, and he meets the Lord. And I hadn't seen him. I don't know, 15 years. He comes now he's a stand up comic. He did this comedy show. And after the show, I'm kind of sitting there. We're going to go out and eat afterwards. And he, he's introducing me. Hey, this guy brought me to the Lord. This guy brought me to the Lord. This guy brought me to the Lord. And then when we're having dinner, he said, Paul, I can't tell you how many times I've given my testimony. 
And remember when you did this? Remember, remember when you did that? I, I've said that in front of FCA groups. I've said it in front of comedy clubs. I said all over the place. Thank, thank you for stepping into my life. So, so the question is, are you going to step away from your plans, your comfort, and, and into God's plan, and how he might just multiply one, one of your steps thousands and thousands and thousands of times over. But you gotta, you got to lay down your plan. You've got to see this as the way home.